All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Cutlass Podcast. Today, we're going to jump into the topic of decision-making, and I, this episode is going to build on Chapter 7 of the Chief Petty Officer's Guide, which is titled Leading, Mentoring, and Developing Our Reliefs, and it's also going to build on Chapter 5 of the Petty Officer's Guide, which is called Coaching, Mentoring, and Performance Feedback. So before we jump into this, I want you to think of how many decisions you've made today since you've woken up, what to wear, what and how much to eat, when you're going to leave home which way to drive to work and how fast you're going to do that. So all that just happened, just getting to work and just think of the decisions that are probably still yet to come in your day. And I think we all know, and we've seen that poor decisional making can impact your personal health, your personal safety, your personal happiness, and all those things of the people around you. It can definitely impact your family as well. And poor organizational decision-making can lead to inefficient allocation of resources which will lead to reduced efficiency and productivity, decrease morale if employees perceive that their manager's decisions are unfair or incorrect, and it can definitely decrease confidence and job satisfaction. So I think it's learning to be a good decision maker is key at any level for any leader, and it changes as you move up in organizations. So joining me today is Master Gunnery Sergeant Scott Stalker. Scott became the command senior enlisted leader of United States Space Command in August of 2020. He's a native of Lebanon, New Hampshire, and he enlisted in the Navy and earned the title of Marine way back in January of 1993. As a command senior enlisted leader, he served for the Defense Intelligence Agency, United States Cyber Command, and the National Security Agency. He's gone through a ton of service schools. I'm not going to cover all of those. Uh, he has earned a Bachelor's of Arts in Intelligence Studies from American Military University. He has a leadership certificate from Harvard Kennedy School of Government and a Master's of Science in Cybersecurity from American Public University. Um, I've had the pleasure to serve with him on active duty. We have done podcasts before when I worked at the U.S. Naval Institute on the Proceedings Podcast, and we do continue to remain in touch, right? We've seen each other out and about at conferences, and I definitely follow him on his social media. So, Scott, welcome to the Cutlass Podcast. How are things going with you? Paul, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Um, Things are going exceptionally well. Um, we, we, you and I were talking before we started, you know, I've, I've got a plan now in terms of my future. And so, uh, retirement is, is coming up soon and I'll soon be, uh, just like you on the other side, supporting our service members. Um, you know, when you called me, I don't know if you realize this, but when you called me and asked me to do this podcast a few months ago, I was leaving Fort Carson and I had just visited the intrepid spirit, um, place and I, I had been diagnosed with moderate uh, traumatic brain injury, moderate TBI. And so the, it was just so odd to literally get a phone call from you right after that to say, hey, let's have a conversation about decision as I realized and learned that some of the th- decisions I've made may have actually been challenged due to some injuries I've sustained in combat. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation because decision-making to me is the ultimate key to leadership. It, it shows good judgment and everything you preface this conversation with. So Let's get after this. This is going to be a fun time and, and quite frankly, a really good conversation. I think so. And like we were talking about, it sounds very simple, right? And I always start with the words that matter, like decisions. Oh, we make decisions. We do it so often. I think we take it for granted. And a key part of the Cutlass podcast and the way, frankly, I wrote the Chief Petty Officers and Petty Officers Guide were these tools of self-reflection. Stop, pause, think about something that you're probably taking for granted. And I think decision-making is one of those. So- So I'm going to start out with a definition. So I looked it up 
And a decision is defined as a conclusion or resolution reached after consideration or the action or process of deciding something or of resolving a question. So that sounds pretty straightforward. Um, but I want to know what comes to mind when Scott thinks of decision making. I think, quite frankly, it's it's in my lane as a, as a Marine, where I'm at today, it's likely the most important element of combat um, to decide to act, what action to take or not act, uh, possibly to gather more intelligence. So do you survey the adversary longer or you decide to take uh, action? Um, these are critical steps. Normally, it comes from experience, and that experience could be both good and bad. Um, certainly, you know, you stub your toe enough time, you've decided, hey, maybe I should put shoes on or pick my foot up a little easier. That's that's a simple piece of it. It comes from education, what we learned in school and from others, and also history. Um, and this equals wisdom, and wisdom allows us to make the most intelligent decision based on the knowledge we have at the time. So let me let me bring it to the space domain where we're at here at Space Command, because in the space domain, this is critical. Um, this is why space domain awareness is a high priority for General Dickinson, the commander here. And, it, and, and he may, may, may need to make a decision in space sometime. The more information he has about that domain, the better decisions he can make. Hopefully the decision is ethical um, and it's with integrity and the best interest of the organization, not just self-serving the individual. Let me use uh, my favorite movie as an analogy, uh, because in the military, we make all the decisions we need. But in combat, they have huge ramifications. Um, and this is why our PMA, our training and our exercises must be tough and realistic. So in, in Braveheart, there was a scene where he came back, William Wallace came back uh, and spent you know some time there and they were celebrating and partying. And he had grown up as a young man. He had been educated by his uncle Argyle um, and he learned to use his brain before he used his weapon. And so there was a rock throwing contest. And Seamus, his buddy, was this big guy throwing big rocks. And Wallace said, well, that's great. You can do that in, in training, but can you do that when it matters as it matters in battle? And he said, I'm going to stand over here, see if you can hit me. And Seamus threw the rock and he missed him. And then Wallace took a small pebble and he hit him right in the head. And so we can make all the decisions we want, but if they don't relate, at least in combat, to the right decision at the right time, um, then we've got to look back to the left and say, hey, was our training, was our exercises, was our PME as best, as good as it could be so that our shipmates, so that our Marines, all of our teammates out there are making the best decisions possible. And that comes from wisdom. Wisdom comes from all of the things we just talked about. Got it. Yeah, that's awesome insight. And uh, so I, I find myself going back. Um, I'm a proponent of paleo nutrition and taking everything and putting it back in a hunter gatherer primitive kind of thing. Right. So that's where I look at kind of the brain piece that supports all this. Cause the things you talked about of being in space were definitely heavily evolved since the days of hunter gatherer. But um, we do have a primitive side to our brain, right? There is biochemistry to this. There yeah. is brain science. Um, but as you know, if, if you go to the primal part of our brain, you know, it's very similar to many of the other animals in the animal kingdom, right? It's all instinctual based, right? I need to eat. I need to sleep. I need to fight or, or run. Um, I need to reproduce, right? Yeah. Those kind of things. But over time, as humans evolved uh, and the challenges that came to them and, and as they came together, societal, this kind of modern brain evolved, right? This prefrontal cortex. So there's this calculation of risk versus reward, right? Um and it's, I think at that point, it just becomes the setting that you apply that, right? So like you said, um, your boss and you are thinking at very high levels, what do we do with information to defend the, you know, the yeah. country from space, space threats? 
but it could be down to the individual level, right? It could be like, what do I decide why I want to eat a certain thing or not? Yeah. Um, You know, um, and then I do know this. I always found this fascinating. Your prefrontal cortex doesn't start to really develop until after puberty, right? So in the military, you know this. We've always been taught, you know, hey, um, we're going to put controls on our younger service members usually in some form or another. But it usually becomes because um, the decision-making matrix in the brain isn't mature enough yet. You know what I mean? It doesn't mature until the 20s. With that said, we've seen way older mature adults make really bad decisions. So that's kind of why I want to dive into this and explore it a little bit. Um, You know, we we were talking earlier, uh, and as I prepped for this, I thought of not just uh, the the prefrontal cortex, which I love the acronym, it's PFC. So as a Marine, I can relate. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But also uh, the prefrontal lobe and the development of that and how that tends to evolve. And, and you don't really have that until maybe you're about 25 as a, yeah. as a, as a male. Um, and so you can't see the ramifications of your decisions. You tend to make things that are in the best interest of yourself now. Yeah. You know, you, know, you, you, you have a kid. Uh, I have children. You, you know, I, I know you have as well. And you think of, okay, um, tomorrow you can have some ice cream. Well, no, no, no. They, it, they, can't, they can't think of tomorrow. Right. Um, it's now. Yep. Um, you, you try to rationalize with your dog. Hey, if you, if you're good today, I can give you a steak that, that doesn't, that doesn't fit because that prefrontal lobe is not there. So yeah, yep. these, these are, uh, interesting how, how we uh, not just evolve as humans, but as we grow in age, we can make smarter decisions. Yep. Hopefully, but I'm going to talk, we'll talk a, bit, a little bit about risk tolerance a little later. Cause it's fascinating. I learned that at the Naval safety center when I was kind of really studying a lot of risk management, yeah. theory and, and stuff like that. But um, all right, so let's get into fundamentals again. So what are some of the different types of decisions a person could be expected to make or influence perhaps over a career? So when I think about it, I'm like, you know, individual type tactical level decisions versus organizational strategic, or there's time dependent, non-time dependent. What are the different decisions that you find yourself or you see other people making if you could categorize them? Yeah, you know, we we talked chapter seven of this book, and and in many ways, it's about professional development. And so, you have to make decisions on who you're going to develop. And some people um, don't show a propensity or a desire um, to to do that. So, do you invest in certain people or not? You make these decisions, and and many of those you make over a career. There's some people that I've been investing in for you know ten, twenty, uh, almost thirty years, um, and so you have to make those decisions based on the time you have. Um, a lot of these um, are different as you move up the ranks. You also normally move up positions. Um, a tactical level decision, although there are tactical decisions that can have strategic ramifications, especially in the information environment. Um, but normally a tactical decision involves your squad or, you know, the, the mess or something smaller. Um, as you move up into a, a now where I'm at, at a combatant command, and I've, I've been at a couple of them now, um, you may have been involved in a decision that have that has huge ramifications. So, for example, if you're at Central Command, you may make a decision that decides we're going to deploy an aircraft carrier earlier or we're going to extend that aircraft carrier. That can have ramifications on the maintenance cycle. That can have ramifications on the families. That can have ramifications on the service members who may be awaiting orders or something like that. So as 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 you grow into these decisions, you have to have, one, the moral courage, especially as a senior enlisted leader, to, to advise properly so that those commanders can see the, the ramifications of those actions. And, and sometimes they're necessary. 
sometimes, unfortunately, hey, we're just going to have to extend you out to sea a little longer. Okay, as long as we go into that full, fully understanding the second and third order effects, that's okay. And we can explain that to our sailors. And most of the times they'll understand that. But when, when you don't have the moral courage to stand up as a senior enlisted leader and say, hey, if we deploy that battalion six months early, now that regiment is one battalion short, and now that division has to make decisions, and, and this is going to lead to the second and third order effects. This is why experience is important. This is why we don't have second lieutenants and ensigns leading at combatant commands level. Um, nothing wrong with those officers, but certainly the same thing with, with PFCs and, and uh, a, you know, junior enlisted of all ranks. Um, the experience is necessary um, for all of this. And so I think, I think back to your question here, um, it, it is really, really important that wisdom, um, the integrity of the decision, and thinking through at the highest level those second, third order effects. And then in combat, it's not just the decision we make, but thinking through what the adversary, the competitor, the enemy is going to do and how they're going to react, uh, because that may change our, our, our reaction, quite frankly. Um, so all of that goes into it. It's, it's, a, it's certainly a deep thinking game. Um, Warfighting requires at the highest level really, really knowledgeable, patient people that are thinking through uh, the process and making the best, making the best decision, not just for the individual, but again, for the, for maybe for the nation. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So I kind of frame it out like the who, what, when, where, why, you know what I mean? As far as, as how the things change. So, you know, um, and like I said, when I look at a young petty officer or young service member, you know, they're going to be more involved in kind of Tact, what we would call tactical, right? Day-to-day decision-making, simple routine things, not a lot of complexity. Um, doesn't mean it can't have a lot of risk. There's a lot of things I did as a young sailor that definitely could kill me, right? So it doesn't mean that the outcomes are less, but they're more routine. Um, usually junior managers or individuals are making those decisions. Um, and the why is really just kind of getting things done day-to-day. And then as you right. move up, um, you know, the timelines, the when changes and becomes usually more spaced out and not again to say that as you move up, there aren't time critical decisions. Cause I know you've had to make them. Your boss has had to make them. Um, yeah. Someone may launches a major attack on this country, you know, strategic yeah. level leaders are making short term decisions. Yeah. Um, and then the what, right. Um, as you move up in this, you know, the kind of strategic levels of decision-making, they become definitely more complex. Like you said, right. There's more factors, there's more risk, there's more people involved and, um, so this is kind of just one of the big things I wanted out of this podcast was an understanding of particularly for middle, mid-grade officers and senior enlisted, right? Like, hey, the decision-making you made, you know, at the deck plate level, we would call in the Navy, right? Or at the tactical yep. level, like that's going to change as you move it up. And there's a reason and how you're involved in those things changes uh, as you move up. Um, yeah, I, and hopefully you you learn through those, right? I mean – yep. You and I have both been at sea. Um, I've, I've done uh, several deployments at sea. And um, certainly the wisdom and the experience I had then is not where it is today. But I, I, I think back to that. And, and in this domain of space, I think back to, hey, this is, this is why I bring urgency to Space Command, because I need those ships at sea to have the space capabilities that they need when they need them. I need those commanders to have the intelligence they need so that they can make intelligent decisions. We can protect their decision space. So I think going through those struggles, sleeping in a 110 Marine person uh, snake pit 
and, and you know five bunks high and going through all of those challenges maybe at the time wasn't something I overwhelmingly enjoyed, but I'm so grateful for that experience that has led to a C-cell here at Space Command now who can look my boss in the eye and say, hey, we can't um, short this exercise. We've got to really do this hard so that our sailors at sea, so that the other combatant commands, all of them get the, the, the capabilities that they need um, in training and, and, God forbid, in combat. So I, I just think, you know, there's there's beauty in, in, in the struggles we go through as junior shipmates, um, Marines, you name it, um, because it leads to a, a wiser um, and, a, and, a, and a better advisor more often than not, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's a, you know, the, the, this kind of a little bit off script per se, but I think it's an important point to make. So I think there might be an attitude or belief system in the senior enlisted ranks, at least, you know, Navy that, hey, I'm a deck plate leader, right? My my heart, I just sailor, sailor, sailors all day without a realization, oh, as you step up and move into like a departmental position or a command level position or a, a position on a flag or general staff, the organization expects different things from you at that point, right? So, yeah. and, it, and to your point, you'll never forget that experience of being on the deck plate. I, I will never forget what it's like to be yeah. on a six-month deployment standing six and six watch. Yeah. I won't ever forget what it feels like to be, be put on liberty restrictions, right? And yeah. those kind of day-to-day tactical experiences, those are always, I think, in your heart. But at the same time, you're not doing yourself or the organization any good if you don't learn to, number one, gain more knowledge or take that experience and bringing it up into the higher decision level. That's what they're paying Scott for at this point, right? He's not looking for it. Some of that is get pulled up, but they're expecting more, I would think, at this point. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I am not here to uh, do uniform inspections. I'm not here to uh, to make sure that all the trash outside is picked up. Certainly, those things are important. I get it. Um, but if, if they bring in someone who's been in 30 years, uh, let, let's take, for example, the two shipmates that we have that are uh, combatant command C cells, both at Indo-PACOM and CENTCOM, kind of important COCOMs if you think about yeah. it. Um, both individuals greater than 30 years, a lot of soft experience, but but advising their commander on things that are so critical in in competition and conflict, certainly in central command, always um, always something on fire, if you will. And then in Indo-PACOM, our, our, our pacing challenge out there with China, um, those individuals that are leading both shipmates that we know uh, are, are advising their commanders at the strategic level. And they're thinking of what competitors and adversaries are going to do uh, based on those reactions. It comes from a lot of deck plate leadership, but at this point, they're thinking much greater than that. They're thinking about the allies they have in the nation, whether that's an Australia or a Saudi Arabia, you name it, uh, the partners there. And they're thinking of how they can use all of the tools, all of the experience, the entirety of the joint force to reach and an, an achieve a desired outcome. And that may mean the Navy isn't even a part of the equation in some occasions. It, it could be, hey, we need an Army Brigade combat team to do this, or right. we need air, air support or whatever the case may be. Um, and again, that just comes through years and years of experience. I think it comes from critical relationships, too. Um, and how, you know, I mean, I, I had the Indo-PACOM C-cell last night, give me a call. We were talking about some things. Mm -hmm. We have that relationship. Yep. Uh, you and I have that relationship. And so it's more than just uh, the experience. It's also, hey, I don't know the answer to this, but I can call the Australian C-cell and have a conversation with him or her. Um, yep. And so all of that is critical. And, and that's why, yeah, deck plate leadership is important. You're right. I reflect on it a lot. I miss those days in many ways. Um, 
but I miss them in some ways because sometimes it was, is much more simpler. Yeah. Um, same thing when I was deployed in Iraq, that's all I had to worry about was that deployment. Yes, it was combat. It was dangerous. Um, but that was really all I had to focus on when you get up to the higher level, um, a lot more stress involved because those decisions you make or the advice you give to a decision maker can lead to, um, much broader ramifications. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, because as complexity increases as you move up, right, more people are in the decision rate making, and I, it can be very frustrating, right? You get up at the high level, and you're like, you think like, "Hey, I'm the senior listed leader. My boss is this four star." Yeah. Um, well, by the way, did you realize there's a policy level, right? There's a Department right. of Defense. There's a Department of the Navy. There's secretaries, undersecretaries, and their staffs. Oh, they got to say. Yeah. There's a political level. Right. There's the SAS, the HAS, there's Congress, right? There's, they state, have a say. State department. Yeah. State department. Right. Yeah, so it's like right. when you get up there and you real quickly realize, like, ugh, why is this simp- what we perceive as something that could be so simple, so complicated? It does. There were many days on active duty. I was like, you know, sometimes it's just rewarding to be able to make a decision that has an immediate outcome. I could walk away from work that day. Uh, but that's part of the nature of what goes with these positions as you move up in the organization. Right. Right. Um, all right. So steps of decision-making. So I think there, we've all done some kind of, at, at this point, if you're listening active duty or not, you've been exposed to some kind of framework of risk management. I think all decisions really come down to some form of risk management. Like I mentioned, it's that primal brain calculating with a modern brain risk versus reward. Um, so usually it's identifying the situation then identifying and understanding the potential solutions, the actions, or the impacts, then listing the advantages, benefits versus the disadvantages and costs of each option, and then choosing the decision you want to proceed with. And I think that includes how you're going to measure the outcome, right? How do you measure what is a good decision and what's not poor? So um, from your experience, you know, I think that does that align with what you've seen as a decision-making process? And then what do you think shapes and impacts our decision-making? Yeah, certainly, you know, there's there's that there's uh, the technical science approach, you know, the the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus, all the, you know, the, yep. the things as we receive information, how we how we move out and do that. Um, I'm as you went through that, I was reminded of a quote uh, from General Mattis when when he was the secretary of defense and he talked about how reading uh, allows him to never be caught flat footed. So most of the things that we uh, find ourselves facing today um, in some manner have happened before. And so through reading, through studying, through um, learning more and more, um, we can then think of how uh, others have gone through those challenges and then decisions they made to allow them to, uh, to be successful. Um, that, that's kind of, that, as, you, as you talked about that question, that's immediately what I thought about um, is, is there's so much knowledge out there. I, I talk all the time that, hey, those history books aren't going to read themselves. Right. Um, and, and studying and preparing. Um, Paul, I'll go back to it. It's, I know it's simple to say, um, but this is why I think it's critical for us to, uh, in our PME, to make sure that we're not just studying our service stuff, but we're expanding, especially as we go up the rank, understanding the joint force, understanding everything you talked about, the yeah. State Department, the, the, the secretaries, the under, all those elements of government that are there, the five warfighting domains, air, land, sea, space, and cyber, um, and how it impacts maybe maritime domains, how the maritime domain impacts the joint force. All of it is critical, but if we find ourselves myopically focused on our single thing 
and and only on our little element of it. I, I think um, you're going to be challenged as a leader as you as you grow up because you haven't you haven't experienced other things and see how the the tactical actions you have have strategic effects. What I mean by that. So let's think about uh, in in the last fifty years one of the greatest revolutions that we've had in the world, and it wasn't combat, it wasn't conflict. It was a Tunisian street vendor who lit himself on fire. So that tactical action normally. Uh, before the information environment existed, that would have been a local event. But because that Tunisian street vendor lit himself on fire and it was captured by the information environment, it had strategic ramifications known as the Arab Spring, yep. leading to the toppling of, of, of many governments. So we have to be wise in this information environment today. You know, if a, if a sailor posts something that probably wouldn't be very smart to do, uh, that, could, that could get entire chain of command in trouble. Um, and that's just a small little bit. And so um, it's, it's really changed the game, uh, whether we talk about social media, the Internet or, or any of the things that are out there. But, but the tactical actions, our sailors, our Marines, our joint force, they have to be, be mindful of this, um, of, of how that, little, that small action they take could uh, maybe now the Secretary of Defense talking to members of Congress about it because, hey, why did that happen? And, and, I, and I won't go through any, many of the current examples, but they're out there. And you, can, yeah. you know what I'm talking about. Okay. Yeah. And you said earlier, definitely experience, right? Definitely when you're, that's the prefrontal cortex. That's really what that is, experience, right? So although you might have an urge and I'm telling you, I don't care if you're making you know, a, a simple maintenance decision all the way up to a strategic decision, right? There are times when you could be genetically programmed bias for action, right? Like I'm yeah. going to make this decision, right? Yeah. Um, that can be good and bad, right? So that experience base, um, but how that experience is captured changes, right? As you yeah. move up, it's captured in the team now, right? So, um, yeah. and, and well, it's not just the experience, it's the knowledge, right? What do you know about the yeah. background? So if, again, back to a senior enlisted leader, a lot of these decisions, you know, are budgetary in nature. Like there's a, there's a money tail to this that constrains the decision, right? But if you don't understand PPPE or that budgeting and decision-making process, or you have no idea what's going on with the budget side of your staff, um, you can't fully, I don't think, advise your commander on the full extent that you could. Yeah. Paul, I, I was thinking about, you know, uh, the proverbial Irish temper, um, yeah. as you talked about that. I, I have it. But I, over time, I've learned that me being a hothead, me instantly responding via an email or, or knife handing someone uh, is, is really not the way to solve problems, especially at this level. Um, and so uh, it could be that that prefrontal cortex. It could be uh, experience. I, I'm sure it's a combination of both. In life, people are going to upset you. I use this analogy with a friend recently. Is um, I went into uh, the, a, a local shopping mart here of a major, major store. And um, I was getting ready to park the car. I got cut off. Uh, the person looked at me like I had done something wrong. And initially, my reaction was, I got to get out and correct this individual. But I realized that as my wife said to me, why are you upset about this? You're in this parking lot. You should know that something like this is going to happen. So being and, and she was so right. And so I've talked to uh, some people about that is, hey, if you're going to go into the parking lot, almost you got to expect that this is going to happen. And so if you're mindful of that, if you're aware of, of, of that, um, then you're expecta- you set expectations and you don't get so angry. This is how I am now when I drive. 
I just expect I'm going to get cut off. I expect that someone's going to uh, get in the fast lane and do 10 miles under the speed limit. Yeah. And now I don't get so angry about it. I, I have that expectation management um, and, it, and it comes with that. So, you know, you talked about the budget. Uh, there, there's a lot of things that as combatant commands and services, we think through this differently. The services have a long-term approach to, to war fighting. You know, the Navy is talking about ships they, they want to build five, ten years from now. This The whole plan of that. Combatant commands need things tonight. And so we have to wrestle with that. And as we make decisions in the combatant command, and I advise the commander about that, I'm mindful of how that can have impacts to the service. And I think if we're if we're working in unison together collectively, um, we're hopefully making the, the right decision for the nation, not just for our service or for our, our our patch, if you will. Yep. And again, as you move up, right, as complexity increases in an organization, you have to understand that complexity, right? right. You can't what you learned as a work center supervisor in the Navy or a fire team leader, whatever is, hey. You, Got it. But as you move up, right, the people you work with changes, the perspective, the knowledge about the organization that you need to know, um, the functions all change. So, again, um, a big part of this comes down to a learning mindset, right? Right, Like if you want to be successful – and this just isn't military. This is at the higher levels, right? You have to expose yourself to the functions across the organization if you want to be a very good decision maker. And I would offer when people hire senior executives and CEOs – they're looking at their decision-making capability. Yes. The you know? judgment. The, the, yep. Your, your record of performance is usually a record of, of intelligent decisions you made. That's judgment. Yep. And you, you have the judgment. And you know that's how we promote, right? We don't just promote you because, um, hey, I need a chief petty officer. We promote you because you have shown in the past a propensity to do good things, to make yep. the right judgment calls. And now you're going to be a great chief petty officer or a senior chief or a master, whatever the case may be. Um, it usually comes down to um, you have the propensity to do well. You've made made, made intelligent decisions. Um, hopefully, you're a good shipmate too. And yep. and then and then we're going to promote you. So it all yep. it all is is tied into this conversation we're talking about today. Yeah, your competence and your character are evaluated, right? So your absolutely your job competence, but they're also looking at hey, are they going to make good decisions as a person as well, ethically yes. and things like that. So right. so I, I mentioned measuring decisions. How do you measure? a good decision or a poor decision. Yeah. You, you know, um, we had an event recently, a fairly large event, uh, that happened. And as we went down in our after action report, um, I talked about measurements of effectiveness and measurements of, of performance. And, and so individuals collectively, uh, performed well, but, but how do we tie it back to effectiveness? And so that gets back to when you're making these decisions, um, what are your what are your desired outcomes first and foremost as you're getting ready to to have a symposium a conference what is your desired outcome thinking about that first and then in in reverse now talking about the people you need the talent you need the resources you need the tools that you need in order to do that and if you're going to have a measurement of effectiveness you have to know first and foremost what outcome are you trying to achieve because otherwise I can have a lot of measurements of performance. Individuals collectively went in and did well, but did they did they move the needle in the right direction? Did they did they achieve the desired outcome? Yeah. Uh, you think about this in in the in the challenging world we have today with recruiting. Okay, so we're we're trying to recruit young men and women to join the Navy, to, to join the Marine Corps, whatever. Um, 
Well, where are those individuals at? What I mean by that is you and I grew up, we probably watched some television. We watched the Super Bowl. We watched that for the commercials. In today's society, more, more, more folks are watching social media, whether that's TikTok or YouTube or other places. And so when we make intelligent decisions with recruiting, we need to make those based on where our people are at today, where the people that are, are or we're trying to uh, reach out to. And, and, I, and I, I think about this a lot, you know, whether we're making intelligent decisions with recruiting and if we're reaching out via the right method and tools where those people are at. Again, knowing our desired outcome is to bring talent in, we're going to have to go where that talent is. And, and more often than not, they're not, I know my daughters, they, don't, they, they despise commercials. They're instantly yeah. swiping to the next thing on YouTube or whatever uh, and moving on. We've got to find out how do we, how do we reach that group of individuals making intelligent decisions, trying to achieve those desired outcomes. Okay. Yeah. I think it's a balance of, yeah, your goals are achieved, your objectives, right? You, you yeah. know what you want, but I think at the same time you avoid these costs and negative outcomes, right? And they yeah. may not just be physical, they could be emotional. So you can achieve your goal and trample your team, right? So is that a good decision, right? So I might in the, in my pursuit, I might make a decision that, really has to put my people in a bad place, right? I'll meet my, meet my objectives. Um, yeah. But on the other end, you could you know, make a decision to kind of favor the people side more and the, at, the, at the suffering of meeting the objective. So there's balance in that as well. But again, experience. And when you're making those kind of decisions, I think you have a team that's involved with you helping. That's why we have boards and staffs and all that stuff. It's not just people to do things. It's people to help senior leaders decide. All right. So one area I learned about um, when I was a command master chief of the Naval Safety Center, like I said, I started to really read about guys like Jane Breezen and you know theorists in the in risk management. So this concept of risk tolerance and then normalized deviance came up, right? And I really wrote about that. And that the normalized deviance and risk tolerance actually underwrote the first article I wrote about nuclear power cheating, right? So and not making excuses for people who decided to take confidential material, you know, exam material, take it home and stuff. But I want to argue that, Hey, there's a human factors element to this and there's pressure by an organization. So, um, and the fact and learning the fact that although hazards and costs can be identified and their impacts are understood, um, people can still, there's a series of factors, 10 of them that can impact your, your, decision-making and your propensity to maybe not make a good quote-unquote decision. Um, so these are things like overestimation of capability by younger people, right? Not as much experience, but they think they can. And overestimation of experience by older people, right? So getting complacent, familiarity with the task, resulting complacency, underestimating the seriousness of the outcome, um, personal experience with an outcome. So if I've personally had something happen to me and I've had a personal outcome, I'm definitely going to mitigate that risk more than if I've just heard about it or seen it. Overconfidence in your equipment or your personal perfect, personal protective equipment, um, the potential for profit or gain, right? And that could be money, emotional or physical gain, right? There's something that can make you lower your risk tolerance and do things that we've seen that I think in bad ethical leader decision-making. And then also role models not accepting or role models accepting risk in front of their people, right? So now you model that it's okay to do this. So yeah. um, what's been your experience with those kind of things and your advice on managing personal risk tolerance factors? 
Yeah. You know, Paul, it's, um, I, I immediately thought back to a, a significant event in our history and that of the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster. When you talked about the normalized deviance of behavior, um, that entire event um, took place because one, uh, as you read through um, the after action report, there was certainly a, a high amount of pressure to perform. Yep. Um, we were going to put a, a teacher in space. We were going to you know, it was going to be a huge national event. And, and unlike today where we put things in space almost every day, um, back then we, we paused as a nation and we watched literally, we stopped in school. I remember as a young child, I watched, uh, the space shuttle, uh, launch. We, we, we literally rolled out the television. Um, but the normalized deviance of behavior there and what happened was, um, there was an O-ring and there was a basic amount of of, of tolerance that that O-ring could withstand in terms of temperature. And the manufacturers set the temperature settings. But as we continued to ramp up the pressure to perform, um, that temperature setting was waived. And it was waived continuously until at some point the standard no longer became the standard. We had waived it and we had normalized um, bad behavior, if you will. Um, there were a lot of risk factors in that. Um, there was a lot of things going into it. One, you know, the pressure to show that we were, you know, a powerful United States and the USSR at the time um, wasn't going to be the lead in space. And so what happened is as we normalized uh, that behavior, uh, we lost seven astronauts and and they all they all perished. I I believe it was uh, 70. Don't quote me on this, but it was, you know, just over a minute into launch. uh, We lost those astronauts. So. We have, we, we, again, back to all, everything we've talked about, you have all of this wisdom, experience, judgment, but when you put pressure on an individual, those decisions sometimes are, are much more um, challenging. I think of, uh, you know, I was watching the NBA finals or excuse me, the playoffs the other day. Um, If you and I just went and shot some free throws, no big deal. Game seven is on the line now. Wow. The pressure's on. Same thing with going to the rifle range. Um, you're, you're there, you're shooting, no big deal. No one's shooting back. Suddenly you're in combat and your heart rate is elevated. You're being shot at. Maybe, maybe you even having some emotions in there because your friend was shot, um, and potentially killed. And so all of that pressure changes things, which again, goes back to why I, I constantly harp on the importance of tough and realistic training. Certainly we're not going to have training where people are shooting, uh, directly back at us. But as, as close as we can in, in, in the military, in combat, having tough and realistic training, having true and reliable professional military education allows us to lower that stress threshold and then go back to our instincts and react instead of, wow, I've never encountered this before. What am I going to do? Um, all, all of that's incredible, incredibly important. We have history to fall back on, as I talked about with NASA. Um, and then and then also as leaders, how do we impart that tough and realistic training on our troops and on ourselves? Because we yeah. should be leading ourselves first. And we've seen it. Like you mentioned, I had that written down to Challenger, but Chernobyl, right? If anyone hasn't watched that series, right? Again, same thing. There was perceived pressure by a manager, right? That drove them to test outside of parameters and adjust core physics um, that yeah. resulted in Chernobyl, Um and you can't tell that cost outcome wasn't significant. Right. And then we see it all the time, right? These leader failures and people are always like, well, how could this person who's so experienced make these decisions? We saw it in the Navy, right? Glenn defense yeah. Marine scandal. And yeah, again, these are people, these are humans. Um, 
they have pressures that come on them from a variety of factors. And I think it comes down to, and not, and by the way, also fatigue, stress, um, drug and alcohol use, um, external noise, right? Like, so environmental noise and confusion, like that's a battle thing, right? Like that can affect that. Um, no one, we're not a bunch of bots, right? So people just have to realize number one, as a, as a leader for yourself, do you none, do you have a way of determining when these pressures are skewing your normal decision making? And I think we all kind of feel it inside a bit. Like, ugh. you start to feel something inside, like that's not what I want to do, right? So when that unease comes up, I think you should stop and go, what is really influencing my decision at this point? And then another one, as a leader, knowing your people, right? So understanding, and these are in, again, um, they're more in depth in the Chief Petty Officer's Guide and the Petty Officer's Guide with recommendations of how you can manage those and how to mitigate those with your teams. But that's a key role as a leader and a manager is being able to identify, number one, when you could be putting those pressures on your people, right? That that could lead them to making bad decisions or decisions you don't expect them to make, but also knowing when they're fatigued or when you see those symptoms of overconfidence and things like that. Yeah. This is, uh, this is why, you know, we talk about artificial intelligence. We talk about generative AI, machine learning, all of these things. This is why, you know, and, and much of that is on the science of leadership, but the art of leadership is critical too. And sometimes you'll find yourself put in a situation where you're getting ready to deploy and you get a brand new group of Marines, a brand new group of sailors. Um, and it's going to come down to the art of your leadership, being able to understand the strengths and weaknesses of your people as you can quickly assess that as best you can. Uh, hopefully relying on a, a strong leader um, subordinate that you have still on the team is, is incredibly important. Um, but I, this is, you know, as we, as we hear more and more about how uh, we're going to have dis- computers making decisions for us, automation, this type of thing, I'm not quite so sure we're there yet. Because the, the art of leadership is is the nuance of being able to sense, to feel, yeah. to, to fully understand our people, to look them in the eye and say, wow, you are tired. I need you to get some rest. I need, you know, take a knee, whatever the case may be. And then one of the things that I try to do as best I can for both myself and the leaders that I advise is to protect that decision space as best I can. When's How much time do I have to make a decision? I'll get invited to some things. Hey, if I don't have to RSVP yes right away, I'm not going to because other things may evolve and I don't want to have to change change decisions. And so that comes with experience as well yeah. um, is just being able to do that. But, you know, it, it's nice to think that we uh, all will know our people and we'll all know them well and then collectively we'll go to combat after preparing for three years. The reality is is different and it shows me and it tells me as I've done many deployments, normally you get a big dump of, of Marines, of junior enlisted 30 days prior, and you've got to make the best of it as you can um, and, and, and use the leadership skills, both art and science, uh, to make wise decisions. And then also I did an episode of the podcast, um, I think I did with Jim Hurt. We talked about managing difficult conversations, right? So this, yeah. hey, when you're in that decision-making group, and they're going down this unethical road or one that you know, right? The engineers for the challenger knew they were well out of tolerance, right? And they were trumped. Yeah. But do you know at that point when your hand is forced, like what are your legal resources? What are those kind of things? You know, what are the authorities above these people that you need to leverage? Um, again, knowing those is important when you're in these positions. So absolutely. 
Um, so as we, we've discussed this, as you move up in organization, decisions are more complex um, and our role in them as people or senior enlisted leaders changes. Definitely the way you make decisions as an individual or a small team leader compared to how you make decisions on a staff or in his advisory board are different. So what's your impact or what's your perspective on how the decision-making changes as you move up? And then how should like a senior enlisted leader adjust to support organizational decision-making? I think uh, one of the things you have to do is adjust to uh, the fact that you're, you're going to usually, as you move up the ranks, be on a staff um, especially where I'm at now uh, of joint service members who all have a different level of experience and mm-hmm. they come from different services. And it is far more effective to work with the team than against them. And so what I do, um, hopefully fairly well, I'll, I'll leave others to judge that, is I spend most of my time talking to the chief of staff here. And, and because I have the pulse of the force and I have experience as a junior enlisted member, but I also have access to the commander. A direct access to the commander. I can talk to him at any point, no matter where he is on the globe. And, and obviously he can with me. And so I have that perspective of, of where the commander wants to go with things. I have the, the pulse of the force and, the, and, and I've done that before at the junior level. And so working with the chief of staff, working with the team collectively um, allows us to be in harmony, synchronize as best we can. And quite frankly, uh, there's going to be times that we disagree too. And I get to an opportunity to give my point on why I, I see things differently. Maybe the chief uh, sees things differently together. Um, normally, it's a professional disagreement. It always is a professional disagreement. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then we'll bring that to the boss and say, here's my perspective. Here's, here's his. Um, let's, let's give him all the information, protect his decision space as best we can, and then collectively make a decision. The professional uh, then leaves the room and supports that decision as long as it's ethical and moral. And the professional doesn't say, well, they didn't support what I thought, um, then I'm not going to support this. And that's not um, how as a military and as an organization we have to be. There's going to be times when your commander disagrees with you. It's rarely because they don't like you. It's almost never because they don't like you. It's, it's because they may have more information. They have greater perspective. They have guidance from the top down that you may not have access to. Uh, but but as an SCL, as you move up the ranks, really working uh, with the chief of staff, with the, the staff members, whether they're department heads, what we have here, we call JDERS, joint directorates, um, and, and collectively uh, gathering uh, both the, the pulse of the force and, and really making sure everyone understands the commander's intent and desired outcome is going to lead you more often than not to success. Okay. And I think a big part of it, and and this is part of joint PME, right? When we went to Keystone, right? Understanding how decisions are made on a staff, right? So that you can't influence and advise a decision if you don't even know how it's made and the process. It's more, it's not like time dependent. Usually there's several layers to it. There's pre-decision briefs, there's decision briefs, um, but also who are the influencers in the decision maker, right? Yes. I think that's a big dis- difference at the tactical versus strategic level, right? So um, when we were tactical level leaders, right? Hey, I knew I had the ear of my boss, my commanding officer, my 06, 05, and I could just yeah. walk in. Not that he didn't con- consider other things, but my ability to kind of gauge what was going on in the, office, in the organization was easier. Um, and he took that a lot more. As I moved up, um, you're working like with SESs, right? These are flag yeah. officer equivalent civilians, right? You're working yeah. potentially with, you know, secretary staffs for department of whatever service or department of defense. So a lot of people are in there in this decision space. So if you think you're just going to roll in the boss's office and 
quote unquote, jump up and down on the table, that doesn't work, right? So learning who key other decision makers are and, you know, using coalition tactics when I go into influence tactics, like, hey, we agree and, or maybe help and strengthen their um, argument, right, towards something. Um, It is very complex. We don't have time to go into that specifically, but again, it's an area that as a as a developing senior enlisted leader or st- or mid grade officer, start talking to people who have been on staffs. So you're going to probably end up on one at some point in some capacity. You just need to understand how that thing works. So, Paul, you said we don't have a lot of time to go into that. I'll just use one word to summarize that. And that is okay. Trust. You have to have trust. If you if you if you've developed trust with you with your SCSs, your c- civilian leadership, your officers, uh, the chiefs mess, whatever, develop that trust. Um, they'll realize that you're not doing this in order to, for, to, to be self-servant. It's, yep. it's, it's to better the organization. And you change, right? You're on advisory boards, you're in bigger governance meetings. Yeah. Um, so you still bring that perspective, but you have to prepare for these briefs. You can't just roll in there like I have an enlisted perspective um, and be uninformed, right? Because um, right, right. if you start spouting off in front of a, a big policy group and it's it, – you're quickly going to lose your credibility to your point, right? And then they won't trust you as an advisor. The most important thing you have at this level is your professional reputation. And that comes through competence, that comes through your character, through performance. Um, And if you find yourself not moving up in opportunity, it's normally because there's a professional reputation that's there that says, hey, I'm not quite sure this person is ready for the, the flag officer level, the GOFO level. Um, and, and that's normally based on a professional reputation that quite frankly, we've earned. Yep, absolutely. Um, all right. So let's talk about skills. So I think decision-making is a learned skill set, right? And it comprises other skills. Um, so I think you need to have problem solving skills. You got to have cognition and intuition and you develop that over time. We talked about experience. I think emotional intelligence plays into this, um, so what's your advice to the young leader or developing manager on how to best develop those kind of skills and which skills you would think underlie great decision-making? You, you hit on one of them. I think more and more I'm finding that empathy is, is critical um, because we, uh, we bring in people from all over, quite frankly, not just the country, but the globe, um, service members from across the globe. And each individual has had different types of challenges, um, more often than not, those that enlist don't come from a, a silver spoon family where everyone's extremely wealthy and they had a butler and that sort of thing. And they yeah. had different challenges. Um, and so empathy is critical. I think you've got to be cr- curious, dedicating your life to lifelong learning, never being comfortable, challenging the idea of how it's always been done. Um, understanding that as leaders, you're not there to be their friend. You're there to lead, make tough decisions and solve hard problems. And that doesn't mean you're not kind. That doesn't mean you're not a professional, but you often see failure when leaders are more concerned with being liked than being effective. Um, and I see that what I call as being a cheerleader, vice a leader. And so yeah. we, we have to often make those hard decisions that at the time someone may not appreciate or like. Um, hopefully they realize that it is in the best interest of the organization um, and, and those decisions uh, need to be made. I worry when I see leaders today that are more interested in taking selfies, that are more interested in being a cheerleader and being a pal and a friend um, than being an effective leader. And I, and I will tie this back to being a father, uh, being a parent, if you will. Um, I've told my young children all the time, hey, we're, we're, not, we're not friends. I'll be friendly with you, 
but I've got to set them up for success because I won't be here for the entirety of their life. And I've got to make sure they're independent, they're intelligent, they make wise decisions. Um, they, they learn from the bumps and bruises along the way. Um, and then they, and they grow from that. It's the same thing, whether you're a parent or a, or a senior enlisted leader, a commander is, is having that empathy. Um, but also then being an effective leader, not trying to be always everyone's buddy or their bro. So there is, this just came up in my mind because there is a emotional cost to decision-making, right? Like you're never going to please everyone. So what's your advice on how do you manage the emotional burden, I guess I would say, right? That comes with, and, and this could be anything, a leader, a parent, a brother, a sister that has to make a hard but right decision that comes with huge emotional cost, right? You, you often see presidents visibly age yeah. over four to eight years. So what's your advice on that or any other last insights on advice on becoming a better decision maker? You know, on, on that, I, I think um, as long as you're fair and consistent, people will realize that you're doing this for the best interest of, of the organization. And, and I think this is where accountability is incredibly important. And you'll find there's a lack of accountability with cheerleaders. There's usually accountability with leaders. And that could be publicly praising. That could be privately counseling. But making sure that everything we do, we learn from and we strive to improve. Um, and, and, yeah, you, you, the, the higher up, you know, I used to have a really uh, a, a nice set of hair. I'm, I'm losing that. It's turning gray. Um, <laughs> hey, this is the, this is uh, comes with the challenges and it still looks know, pretty good. You can come to this side with the bald yeah, head. I, I know. I knew you were going to say that. Um, <laughs> my my last bit of advice to anyone listening today is: I recommend if you're pursuing a career in the military to seek challenges. I tell people all the time: if you get the option to select an assignment, take the one you think is the hardest. Maybe one you don't think you can do or don't believe you're qualified for and seek out that challenge. You're going to grow. You're going to gain more experience, wisdom. You're going to make hard choices, but you'll become a better leader. And we need leaders at the highest level, not just with book knowledge, but with a diverse set of assignments that can be challenged. So when there's only a few people in the room deciding, you have the judgment and the wisdom to make that right decision. Resources, you know, I would recommend people certainly listen to the podcast, listen to the podcast and the conversations you have have had, Paul. You've put out a tremendous amount of content to the entirety of Joint Force, to the entire globe. I'd recommend people listen to what you have to share. You've shared a lot. Um, I think it should include listening to ideas and concepts and opinions that you may not agree with. So you don't get tunnel vision, right? Yeah. If you're always watching the same news channel that gives you the same opinion that you always agree with, quite frankly, what's the point of that? Challenge yourself with different concept, different ideas. Uh, I, I would say the greater your options are, the more you're going to learn, which will help you decide and act when you need to. History is a great guide, like I talked about, but those books are not going to read themselves. And so it's just really constantly being curious. Let me use one final analogy, Paul. For about, about seven or eight years ago, I was really heavily involved in competitive powerlifting. And the only way I could grow and get better and put up bigger numbers is each time I went in, I, I had a goal and I tried to achieve one pound more, a mm -hmm. half pound more. And as I put on more resistance and I made it harder and harder, I found that I grew stronger and stronger and I was able to put up bigger numbers. It's the same thing in leadership. If you put yourself in challenging assignments, if you put yourself in, in situations where there's going to be pressure on you, you it, it will be hard. But that hard will come with making you a better leader and a better product. Whereas if you only stick in your comfort zone for a 20-year career or a 30-year career, you're really not going to have that, that wider base of knowledge. And it's going to be hard to advise at the GOFO and the flag officer level. Awesome. 
All right. Well, I think that's a great way to wrap it up. So my guest today has been Master Gunner Sergeant and soon to be civilian, Scott Stalker. <laughs> yes. So Scott, as always, it's great seeing you. Thanks for taking your time out of what I know is a very busy schedule. I see you traveling, you're out and about. I love your LinkedIn stuff. So keep that stuff coming in as well. And thanks for sharing your insights and experiences with us. Thank you very much, Paul. Appreciate it. All right. All right, everyone. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Cutlass Podcast. So I think today some questions for reflection for you to take and think about. Uh, number one, I would ask myself, what is my decision-making style and how can I improve it? Am I impulsive? Am I deliberate? Am I overly cautious? Do I you know, work with my team to make team decisions or do I take it alone, right? Think through those and think about how you can prove it and hopefully we've offered some insight on helping you do that. What lessons have you learned from the last good decision you made and the last poor decision you made? And what did you do take away from those to continue or strengthen yourself as a good decision maker or overcome some of the weaknesses you may have? And then finally, I would ask myself, what decision making skills do I need to develop and improve my decision making and what resources are available to help me do those things? As always, I'm Paul Kingsbury. Work hard to keep your leadership cutlass sharp, reflect and improve and take what you learn to become a sturdy, versatile and credible leader who makes a positive difference. 